time enough at last. Submitted for your consideration to sci-fi fans, Sean Majors and Keith Conrad. Rewatch The Twilight Zone from beginning to end. It's like something out of that Twilighty show about that zone. You're looking at Mr. Fred Renard, who carries on his shoulder a chip the size of the national debt. This is a sour man. A friendless man, a lonely man, a grasping, compulsive, nervous man. This is a man who has lived 36 undistinguished, meaningless, pointless, failure-laden years. And who at this moment looks for an escape. Any escape. Any way, anything, anybody to get out of the rut. And this little old man is just what Mr. Renard is waiting for. Episode 12 of The Twilight Zone was What You Need, and uh, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, Sean. Have you ever seen the the uh, the mo- Twilight Zone, the movie from uh, the early 80s? Oh, yes. Uh, plenty of... I, I, I hope I hope we do that one day, because there are plenty of scenes that terrified me as a child. Oh, we, we need to... That, that should be, uh, you know, since we're doing, you know, all the Twilight Zone episodes, that should be like our series finale. Love it. We'll, we'll talk about... Uh, Talk about Twilight Zone, the movie. And, and you're right. Like, so much of that is just absolutely terrifying. Oof. But uh, in the uh, opening narration, Serling says uh, that the, uh, the character uh, carries on his shoulder a chip the size of the national debt. Um, yeah. That line is actually from the, uh, the narration for the Vic Morrow oh. Twilight Zone, the movie, like word for word, a chip on his shoulder of the national debt. R.I.P. Vic Morrow. And fun fact, in 1959, the national debt was $284 billion, uh, which is less than uh, the stimulus payments to individual taxpayers. <laughs> you know, I, that's so funny. I um, wrote down the same, um, uh, th- the same notes. I, I, I did some, uh, some national debt research. Uh, <laughs> Because I thought it was funny that they said the size of the national debt in 1960, where it had basically like cut in half when compared to World War II. Mm -hmm. Because so 1960, uh, as a share of GDP, the debt was 45 percent. World War II at its height was 112 percent. And whereas right now we are just under 80 percent. And so you think about it like there, there were wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. What have we gotten for that? <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> Not us, but, you know, def- defense contractors. They're, they're they're so- defense contractors and uh, uh, you know, uh, contractors of all types. Let's just, let's just say. Yeah, that. more or less. <laughs> um, the, interestingly enough, this episode was the inspiration for the Stephen King short story, I Know What You Need. So he wasn't very clever coming up with a new title. It's just... <laughs> Um, he just put I know. Um yeah. so is is that the is I know what you need did that get turned into needful things or is that a completely different story? Oh, that's a good question. Uh let's uh let's 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 open the Google uh machine cuz I think needful things is a little I mean it's it's the same con- well, I guess it's not really the same concept, but no, it's you ne- know needful things is its own horror story. Interesting. Stephen so, King really just liked uh, talking about things people need. Apparently so. And a recurring theme on, uh, on our podcast here, uh, Time Enough at Last. Yet another example of the Twilight Zone trying to make Keith Conrad and Sean Majors feel old 
Uh, yes. Ed <laughs> Renard is supposed to be 36 years old. He's not 36. Actor Steve Cochran, not to be confused with the Chicago radio host Steve Cochran, uh, was 42 years old at the time. Not as bad as, as uh, the others, but, but still. <laughs> I think I think in this instance they had to make him 36 because I mean how old is a how old can you really make uh somebody who is a washed up uh I assume uh pitcher but still oh, no, no, has a chance the, uh, this isn't the pitcher this is the the main character the the main baddie in the story. Oh sorry 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 Fred I apologize. Mars, the, the guy with the chip on his shoulder the size of the national debt. Oh I have something embarrassing to tell you. Oh, I just assumed that was the same character. Oh, oh really? no. <laughs> I need to pay attention to these episodes a lot more. So you thought the the wow. I just wasn't paying attention to the names. Maybe I think all <laughs> God, I wish I didn't admit that. Maybe I just think all all uh uh black-haired white guys in 1959 look alike. They, they all look alike to you, don't they? <laughs> all quote-unquote 36-year-old men. <laughs> uh, Lefty, though, uh, since you brought him up, who is a, a different character, he's his own man, uh, he used to pitch for, the, for a couple of years with the Cubs, it's mentioned in the story, and since it's the 1950s, you know he probably wasn't very good. <laughs> Like, I, I, I don't know. At, at one point, he is going to go be a coach for somebody. I'm not sure that he's qualified, considering the fact <laughs> he played for the Cubs in the 1950s. Oh, man. It's, uh, it's still decades before the, the glory days of Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor. The, the gl- and when you say glory <laughs> days, you mean literally days, because there's yes. about 27 days in which both of those pitchers were healthy. <laughs> uh, still don't know why they didn't just move Kerry Wood to the bullpen. Well, they did eventually, and then they left. No, they did. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, th- let's let's talk about the glory days of John Lester and, and Kyle Hendricks, please, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, one, one question that popped into my mind when watching this, because it, it does revolve around a sidewalk salesman, and... Uh, we are here on episode number 12, so one-sixth of the Twilight Zone at this point has revolved around a sidewalk salesman. So what happened to them? Because now, and, and I, I'm not making any political statement or, or any commentary when I say this, now people on the street, they tend to just ask you for money. Like They don't actually <laughs> sell you goods. They just say, hey, can you give me money? Uh, so what happened to that? <laughs> it's it's this is really funny i mean we're we're writing very similar notes i think independently of each other because i wrote um <laughs> how many street peddlers were there really in this in the in 1959 um and, and apparently they were all magical in some way they were all magical and had varying degree even though they had uh pretty much the same level of success like you know uh um I, the guy's name escapes me in the, in the second episode where he makes the deal he makes the greatest sale of his life to the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, he's, he's bad at making sales. You know what? Uh, uh, let me stop you there because he doesn't make a deal with the devil. It's death. Oh, that's right. Yes. Uh, sorry. And, uh, and you know, death is not necessarily a bad guy. He's, he's, it's just, he has a job to do. It's very transactional. Uh, he, he is the mayor of, uh, of Amity. 
who got reelected. Right. Um, so, so that, that peddler, uh, has a hard time making a sale. Um, this peddler in what you need has to turn away customers for different reasons. Um, and he ha- and but he's still not selling a whole lot. He has a pretty nice apartment. Yeah, he gives away a lot of his stuff. Like, yeah, like we 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 don't see him actually sell anything. He just keeps giving it away. So, uh, you know, so you know, to fill in the the gaps of the episode, he can sense what you what you will need in your immediate future, <laughs> and um, and whenever. You know, whenever we see him interacting with people, he's giving them something that that ultimately they're they're going to need immediately. So that again, with with me thinking from a very practical sense, can he see that with everybody, or does it just like pop into his head? So most of the time, he's just a normal everyday sidewalk salesman, of which there are many in the 1950s, apparently. Um, but then occasionally, you know, he'll get this sort of spark of inspiration, and he knows exactly what you need. Or does he? Is it just constant, and he can't make any money because he's just got to give everything away? What What's the deal with this guy? That's what I'd like to know. You know, that's a good question because I th- I would imagine you know when the episode starts, uh, you know he hands the the woman a match or no uh, uh, says she doesn't need matches and hands her the I guess spot remover or whatever gets the stain out of uh, yeah. not not Lefty's coat. Um, and, uh, so that might lead you to believe that he, you know, just recognizes things on the spot, but as we'll see the way this episode ends, he plays a long game that lasts all 22 minutes. Yeah. I, uh, I, I respect him for that. Um, and he plays the long game in which he gives, I apologize. What is the main character's name? Fred Renard. Renard. Um, Not to be confused with lefty who is a perfectly <laughs> nice guy. His own man. Probably a really bad pitcher because he was pitching for the Cubs in the 1950s. Well, he's in Scranton now. He built a life over there. Um, But he, uh, Renard, you know, he, uh, Padat gives Renard every chance to not end up the way he ends up at the end of this episode. So that's, that's what leads me to believe that he just has every, that, you know, he sees it from, from a distance, not necessarily, you know, right when he meets somebody. Yeah, and he doesn't want to, um, you know, even even uh, Renard, who's who's not a particularly good person, like he doesn't doesn't want anything bad to happen to anybody, and he tries to avoid it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah, yeah, that makes sense because he doesn't seem like a bad guy. No, not at all, and uh, you know, he's he's uh, you can tell when when he's talking to Lefty. Not to be confused with Fred Renard, um, you know that that he he seems you know like genuinely happy to be helping uh, helping these people. Which, by the way, speaking of which, so you know again, you're trying to tell a story in 22 minutes, and I get that, but he apparently is trying to play matchmaker between Lefty and the woman he gives the spot remover to. Yeah. While he's immediately going to send Lefty off to Scranton to be a, a baseball coach, so I don't. Maybe he's not a good guy. Maybe uh, maybe Lefty uh, experienced wild success. He worked his way up. Uh, you know, pitched for pitched for a couple months, but then you know the injury was just too much to overcome. Mm-hmm. But uh, he made such an such a uh, uh, an impact in the locker room that he was hired at a, a good salary in the front office and. Uh, 
made enough money to bring spot remover lady up to Scranton and started a life. Um, that's he sees the long game, that, Keith. That, yeah, that, that's the only way that, uh, <laughs> that that bit of the story actually has a happy ending. And if you're correct about that, then he really was playing the long game, not just with uh, Renard, but just in general, he was playing the long game. I feel like with my um, conjectures about what happens to these side characters in the years later, um, if someone asked, if, if I said no to the question, do you write Twilight Zone fan fiction? People would not believe me. <laughs> you know, I, I think that may be a, a, a good side gig for both of us. To yeah, I don't see why not. Fan fiction. There's got to be a market out there. Like we're we're not actually writing new episodes. We're actually just writing fan fiction about the existing episodes. We're expanding the universe. It's like Battlestar Galactica: The Plan, except it's it's the Twilight. <laughs> uh, it's just a, a behind the scenes glimpse in, into how all of this worked. <laughs> Although so, some of these things that uh, we've we've picked up on, I don't know that we could possibly come up with a way for them to work. Yeah, it's tough. It is tough. But hey, you got to trust in Padat. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, uh, in, in several episodes, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've noticed a correlation between various uh, pop culture uh, items of the, uh, you know, of later years. And uh, um, I can't help but notice that uh, uh, Fred Renard uh, actually has the same a scheme as Biff from back to the future Two. How so? Well, he's, he's trying to, he, he thinks, Oh yeah. By, by cheating. <laughs> oh, scheme. Contract, yeah, but, but he's got the same basic scheme. <laughs> it would be great if he uh, had a racing form hit in a, a copy of Ooh La La magazine. Yeah, that would, that would be, that would be, be pretty awesome uh, by the way speaking of which uh so, so there's a scene where you know he takes the leaky pen and he's uh you know trying to get uh uh you know trying to get it to show him more horses so they yeah. get more money and uh, the bellhop brings him a, a newspaper and he makes some some really dumb joke about you know like the guy asks for a tip and and he makes some some dumb joke but then he opens it and he spreads it out on the floor and if you're really really quick I read this and then had to look back, and sure enough, uh, it's actually the same newspaper from Time Enough at Last, because the headline before he opens the newspaper is H-Bomb Capable of Total Destruction. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you, do you think they did that on purpose, or they were like, we have a limited number of newspaper prop newspapers? I, I, I think you know, we're, we're starting to pick up on a theme here with the Twilight Zone. I think that maybe the, the budget was so tight on the Twilight Zone. <laughs> And literally just, they were like, all right, we need a newspaper. Here we go. So we have at least two episodes that are in the same universe then. I think so. And and that's an interesting thing because, you know, maybe he's actually, uh, Padat is doing a favor for Fred Renard because maybe Padat knows that everybody's going to die anyway. And, you know, he, if, if, if somebody has to die, you know, a, uh, well, I guess that's a pretty violent death getting hit by, did anybody investigate the hit and run driver though? I know, I know, uh, Renard was a potential murderer, but can we also try and find the driver of that car? Yeah. No, nobody seems concerned about that. <laughs> that's uh, hit and runs uh, were apparently also much like many things uh, that we've noticed in this series, 
uh, very different in the in the 1950s. Very easy to get away with. <laughs> uh, apparently so. Also, I I do really like the uh, uh, when uh, Renard is like in the headlights about to uh, about to be hit by the car. I do love like the the pose he immediately takes. It's like uh, in the movie Airplane where they say assume crash positions. <laughs> yeah. Climbing up on each other. It's, exact, it's like exactly the same thing. He's like, all right, we need you to look scared like you're about to get hit by a car. And he just like throws his arms up in the air. You know, the past uh, the past handful of episodes, there has been a theme of over overacting. And uh, also in this episode, um, you know, you, you mentioned the guy who brought the newspaper to Renard. He, I don't know if he got direction on this or if he just decided I'm going to be the drunk guy. He was trying to play drunk in just the weirdest way. I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he, was, he was sort of going like angry. I don't care anymore. Drunk. Yeah. <laughs> see, we need to, we need a lot. We need to know a lot more about him. We need to know a lot more about the nurse from, and then, the, and then the sky was opened I mean, we need to we need to get our, our leaky pens out and get this fan fiction written. I I think so. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, you know Rod Serling, uh, just an amazing writer. I believe he did write this episode, but um, well, and, and it's worth pointing out that I think that he did like two thirds at least of of the episodes. Like he actually actually wrote them. So I'm going to cut him some slack on that. But it's worth pointing out that uh, Fred Renard, the uh, the jerk. He uh, he says the line, "Why don't you take a flying jump at the moon?" At one, yeah. and uh, the same exact same line is used by the character Leela in the episode "The Chaser." Oh, that's and awesome! By the character Michael Chambers in the episode "To Serve Man." Like, oh wow, word for word. Now, that's awesome. Now, in Serling's defense, again, he was writing a lot of episodes. Yeah, you probably yeah, forget about a it. A couple throwaway lines, so be it. And also maybe, you know, again, the 50s being a very different time, maybe that was just a common thing people were saying to each other at the time. The um, what, I, what I also liked about uh, when, he, when he says that to the bartender, the bartender act, acts like that is the worst thing anybody's ever said to him. <gasps> <laughs> we get all kinds in here. All kinds. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, any, uh, any morality uh, lesson we can take from this episode other than, uh, don't be a jerk. And, uh, if, yeah. uh, somebody gives you a gift, don't say, Hey, where's my next gift? Yeah. Don't be greedy. Um, the main thing I took away from the episode is, uh, elevators were still terrifying, albeit the slowest ever in 1959. Yes. And I, I believe they, uh, they, they stole that, uh, that bit for a, one of the final destination movies. Wasn't it? Yeah. I think somebody's scarf got caught or, or something like that. In um, Perchance to Dream, I, uh, I revealed that I'm terrified of all uh, carnival rides. Also, right. I'll get on an elevator. Um, it's a necessity because God knows I'm not going to take the stairs. But it is, um, I always, you know, you hear horror story. You, you watch the first 10 minutes of the movie Speed, and that changed my life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> well, you know, in, in fairness, you know, you live in Huntsville, Alabama. There aren't any gigantic sky rises. If an elevator <laughs> bomb went off or something and the elevator fell, wouldn't really have that far to go. There was a time my freshman year at University of Alabama uh, before I transferred to UAH and um, the elevator stopped mid floor. 
and I had to jump off and I had to like jump off of it like onto oh, wow. the next floor. Yeah. Terrifying because I was like, Oh cool. Am I going to pick like the second that this, ele- that this car falls? And then I realized like, you know, there's several fail safes in the way that stop. Yeah, that's not the sort of thing that you'd think about in the moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you thinking what, what are the odds that uh, the, the elevator was going to stop mid floor anyway? So, you know, it did. So who knows what could happen? <laughs> so I, I, I think that's a good, uh, good moral for us to take from this story is uh, a, don't be greedy. And uh, B, be careful which elevators you decide to go into. Mm-hmm. Up uh, next, uh, next week, we have The Four of Us Are Dying, which is an episode that I actually hadn't seen until just a couple of years ago. Street scene, night, traffic accident, victim named Fred Renard, gentleman with a sour face to whom contentment came with difficulty. Fred Renard, who took all that was needed in the Twilight Zone. Tron?